Thank you very much, and thanks to Melissa for inviting me and Jess for the very kind introduction. Um, I think this is a very important part of what professors and academics do, and I think more of them should be doing it. So I think this is a great project, and I'm very glad to be a part of it. I see that we have the bread, so it'll be my job to provide you with the circuses, <laughs> which is what I intend to do uh, for the next hour or so. And I think um, very much in keeping with the format that Melissa introduced us to earlier, I will just start blathering uh, and feel free to interrupt um, don't riot, if at all possible, uh, and ask questions, and we will just keep the conversation moving that way. The title of the presentation, which is this, <laughs> is Roman Gladiator, Myth and Reality. So what I have um, written down here are five commonly held myths, I think, about the gladiator, who is in many ways an emblematic figure from the Roman past. Uh, the gladiator stands rather, I think... Um, well, I would say almost ironically, paradoxically, as a symbol of Roman civilization, despite being in many ways an example of how uncivilized uh, people can be. Uh, but it's, uh, he, he's a figure that people immediately recognize and relate to, uh, and really, without thinking further, scene of a gladiator, and you go, Rome, you just associate that immediately with Rome. Some people, when they think of Rome, think immediately of the Colosseum, which is, of course, an amphitheater, a specific building design, that was built for and designed especially to house gladiatorial combats. Now, it could serve other functions, but its chief purpose was to house these, these particular kinds of games. Now, there are five myths, and I think the mention of gladiator in the introduction is a great way to start, because this is, in many ways, a movie that encapsulates so many of these myths. And uh, the first one that I want to deal with is that gladiators were all slaves. Uh, in the movie, you'll remember, we have a senatorial general played uh, in rather brooding fashion by Russell Crowe who uh, falls from grace uh, and ends up a slave and is sold to a gladiatorial training school and begins his rise back up to uh, face off against his nemesis at the end of the movie. Um, and this is typical of the way people conceive of gladiators. They, they think of gladiators as people who are forced to do horrible things to each other for the entertainment of the masses. And to a degree, of course, like any myth, there's a kernel of some truth in it. Uh, there were certainly gladiators who were slaves. There were uh, uh, people who owned gladiatorial training schools would go along to these slave markets and look for certain body types. As there were certain kinds of gladiators, as I'll be talking about in a minute, uh, for which certain, I guess, body shapes, body designs, if you like, tall, short or stocky, would be considered best. And they would pick them up and they would train them and they would make them gladiators. You could also be condemned to a gladiatorial training school. That was one of the possible, uh, one of the possible um, sentences in a Roman court, if you, I guess, got, you know, if you misparked your chariot or something. <laughs> um, you could find yourself condemned to a gladiatorial training school where you were there in training. So, there were categories, so there's certainly a category of gladiator that I would call unwilling. There's the unwilling gladiator, the people who were forced to be so. But rather remarkably, there's plenty of evidence that there were lots of people who volunteered for a career in the gladiatorial arena. And um, not only that, some of these people came from the very upper echelons of Roman society. They were senators, or the class that the Romans called equestrians, right below senators, sometimes called Roman knights. And we can tell that because emperors repeatedly have to pass legislation saying, you guys can't do that. Because, you, you see, as far as the Romans were concerned, literally making a spectacle of yourself for money, which is what gladiators did, something that we admire, the Romans thought was the lowest possible form of earning money. They would look at Tom Cruise or Brad Pitt and go, my God, what scum. <laughs> Social lowlife. They get paid to make a spectacle of themselves. And so if you, were, if you were doing that as a senator or as a member of the elite of the Roman upper echelons, you were basically insulting your class and insulting what the Romans called the dignitas, the honor, the public reputation of your class. The only equivalent I can think of is as if we had senators, sitting senators, and I can think of, of a few possible candidates for this, who took part in wrestling extravaganza. <laughs> Jesse Ventura. <laughs> Uh, are um, entered into competitions as boxers or some such. Uh, we would regard that as a, a, as a demeaning of the office if they were seen to be hitting folded chairs over the heads of people um, in the Bryce Jordan Centre. So um, that's the sort of way that the Romans looked upon gladiators. And yet, 
Here are these repeated, not, not even one-off, but repeated attempts by emperors to stop people from doing it, which tells you there are lots of people who want to do it, that it requires repeated passing of legislation saying, no, no, guys, you guys can't do that. Yes, question at the front. You said equestrian. Did they not come from the army then? Uh, the question was, well, when I said equestrian, do these people not come from the army? Well, the term equus, or in, in Latin, means a horseman. Oh, yeah. Equus now, not equus. And um, the equus means a cavalryman, but this is applied to a social class who are, in many ways, um, not quite equal to, but on a very similar level to the Roman senators. The only difference being that the equestrian class did not take part in politics. They enjoyed their wealth without risking their necks dealing with emperors. Okay? So, um, they're... So because if they came from the army, they didn't make enough money, then therefore they would like to... Yes, um, if they came from the army... Well, generally, the upper echelons of the Roman army... Uh, um, command structure was appointed from among the already prominent elites. So the senators, for instance, were appointed to command legions or command uh, provinces in which there were armies and so forth. Yes, question. What about Commodus? Well, Well, this is a great question. What about Commodus? The emperor Commodus is infamous, of course, for having been so fond of gladiatorial combat that he took part in spectacles in the Colosseum. Now, this we know actually happened. This is not something that's made up. There's lots of stuff about emperors that's made up. This is not one of them. And we know that because the uh, main source, Cassius Dio, a Greek writer from um, Turkey, or at least uh, modern-day Turkey, who was a senator in Rome, describes witnessing the emperor in person in the arena. So we know that for sure that this took place. And, of course, it was treated as an absolute scandal by the senatorial writers who thought, I mean, what could be worse? It's almost as bad as Nero getting up and writing appalling poetry and then locking the doors of the theatres and forcing everyone to listen to his bad poetry. <laughs> it's almost as bad as that, but it's, it's in the same category. Again, you have people of the upper echelons, in this case, uh, case, the very pinnacle of Roman society, making spectacles of themselves. And this the upper echelons hated. But what seems to be very interesting is the lower orders seem to have rather liked it. They seem to have thought it was all a lot of fun, that the rulers would show an interest in their pursuits, in the things that interested them, to the extent that they would actually participate. So they seem to have thought um, that emperors who made spectacles on themselves were the best emperors. They were the funnest to watch. The really boring ones were the ones that we all admire, the ones who were off in the provinces and didn't stay around Rome to be entertaining. Uh, but the ones that we regard as appalling, Caligula and Nero and Domitian, uh, Commodus, these guys all have popular reputations among the masses. It's, very, it's a very interesting distinction, I think, between the classes. So anyway, so there's the first myth then. Uh, all gladiators were not, uh, uh, they were not slaves. And in fact, uh, we have evidence from, say, painted advertisements for gladiatorial games on the walls of, of a place like Pompeii, in which it's specified that free-born gladiators will take place. So it seems to have been a special attraction if the guys were free-born. Now you wonder why. Why is it? Because they used to be free-born, but once they become gladiators, they have to take an oath that effectively removes them from their social class and lowers them into the social gutter where the gladiator lived, uh, as far as the Romans were concerned. So why are they specifying? And I would suggest perhaps one reason is that the willing gladiator is going to put on a better show rather than the guy who's been branded and whipped to go out onto the sand. The guy who wants to be there, probably A, is quite good. I, I imagine if you're a rubbish swordsman, you don't choose to be a gladiator. <laughs> okay? Um, and that, so that you have to feel that you're quite good. And then you're keen to be there and put on a good show. So, I, so that's the reason I suspect. Uh, there may also be an element of class schadenfreude as well. It's nice to see a senator reduced to that level. Perhaps... There's no evidence for that. But I suspect that they just put on a very good show, those guys. Um, So that's the first myth. second myth is that gladiatorial fights were some kind of a Royal Rumble free-for-all in which the last man standing won. That's all we saw in the movie Gladiator. They were much more complicated and much more carefully thought out than that. They weren't just uh, spectacles of complete butchery and mayhem. They were very carefully thought out. We can identify perhaps... 24 different armatures, as they're called. That means 
sets of equipment that gladiators had, each with its own name and each with its own specialty. The most famous gladiator probably that you th can think of. What sort of gladiator do people think of when they think of a gladiator? What, what comes to mind? Lions. Sp well, lions, okay. Uh, not entirely human, but nevertheless, yes, yeah, certainly. <laughs> Spectacles involving execution. The, the executions take place at lunchtime, more or less now. <laughs> sort of gladiatorial games unplugged would be executions, you see. Um, so what kind of... The the, exactly. There's one. The trident. He's the emblematic gladiator, is he not? The guy who's got bare-chested, bare-headed. He's the only gladiator who hasn't got a helmet on. He carries a net with little lead weights around the edge of it, a fishing net, and the trident. He has a dagger as a secondary weapon. He has a loincloth, and he has a big piece of equipment on his arm called a mannequin that goes up his arm, has a big shoulder piece like that, and that's his only equipment. He's very exposed. He was called Aretiarius, a net man, and he was very popular. He would go out fishing with his net and trident, which are the attributes of the god Neptune, the god of the sea. And he would go out fishing, and he would be pitted against a guy called a mermelo, which means fish guy. See, a little joke there. Not, of course, if you're one of these fighters. It isn't so funny. But nevertheless, he would go out, and the mermelo was normally, was normally equipped. He was more heavily armored, and he had a, a breastplate and so on, except there'd be an open square in the breastplate here. A target. He'd have a, sometimes a big shield, sometimes a smaller shield. He'd have a helmet. He'd have greaves, which are pieces of armor that cover his knees down to his ankles. And the gladiators had different versions of them that were more padded. They had big padded things on the bottom of their legs. They're not quite military greaves, but similar anyway, similar kind of idea. And he carried a short sword about, this, about maybe one and a half feet long. So the mermelot has to get in close to be effective against the largely unarmored retiarius, whose job it is is to keep the guy at bay with his trident and try and ensnare him with his with his uh, um, net, or use the lead weights at the end of the net as kind of a whip to lash him and try and get him down. And that was the competition. In close fighting, or being able to keep the guy back. Sometimes the Retiarius was, uh, uh, was uh, pitted against a guy called the Secutor, which means the follower. And he would be uh, much more heavily armed. He had a big shield and a very ominous-looking smooth helmet. Why smooth? Because of the net. See, if the helmet's got any kind of bits sticking out, horns or whatever, and the net grabs them, then the fight's over in a second. Just net the guy's head, pull him down, end of story. But if it's a smooth helmet, the net will just roll right off. And you have to have more skill in using the net to trip up your opponent. And the secutor presumably is called a follower because the usual format of such fights is that the retiarius is retreating and the secutor is moving forward. Trying to get in close. He also has a small dagger-like sword that he has to get in close with. These are carefully thought-out competitions. These pit advantage against disadvantage. Okay, and they're designed so that and they take place not with a mass of guys all at once hacking at each other, uh, which would be just be complete chaos. But they, they take place in individual pairs. There's only ever two two guys out on the sand at once. So the whole arena, in the case of the Colosseum, fifty-five thousand people are focused on these two guys and their, and their struggle for life and death. The whole bout might, may be lasting 20 minutes at most before they got exhausted. Okay? Now, there are 24 different armatures. There are guys who were called chariot guys. There are guys called lasso guys. There are gladiators who fought with two swords. I kind of think of them as being kind of Power Ranger kind of chaps. <laughs> I say Power Ranger because I've got a four-year-old and I'm forced to watch this on a regular basis. <laughs> um, then there are, guys, uh, there are guys called equites. Horsemen, cavalrymen, who, it seems, would ride out in a horse. It would be a grand entrance. Has anyone here been to a Spanish bullfight? No. no? That's something to see. And that's, that's something I think a Spanish bullfight's not too far from the atmosphere and the experience of watching the electoral games. Lots of violence. At first you're appalled and repulsed. Then you get kind of interested in what's going on. And at the start, guys come out in big horses with big lances. They're called picadors. They've got... Like a big lances. They look like medieval knights. They're very impressive. And they start gouging away at the bull, at the shoulder muscles, to weaken the bull's shoulder muscles so that he can't use his horns quite as well against the other guys who are not going to be on horseback and don't look like knights, or dressed up in kind of strange outfits with silly hats. And I could imagine then the opening of, of, 
of a gladiatorial combat. Outride two guys and gallop around the arena on horses. They're the horse guys. Then they get off the horses and they fight it out on the sand, okay? Equally equipped as well. So they just pit the same equipment against each other. And so on and so forth. So so there's a variety of these armatures and uh, these gladiators were very carefully thought out so that they would make each bout interesting. The worst thing to happen would be for the crowd to get bored. If the crowd gets bored, it reflects badly on the guy who's putting on the games, which is something else I don't mention as a myth, just as a bit of information. In the games, games were put on by Roman individuals at their expense and offered for free. There was no entrance fee. Okay? And the function of that, why would they do that? Because they are immensely expensive things to put on. Why would you do this? Well, like so much in Roman society, you didn't do it for commercial reasons. You invested your money and you received back social capital. You received back respect, honor, dignitas, that word again, political power. power. You could say, when you stood for office, remember those games last year? The best ones you ever saw? We had things like rhinoceroses in them. Remember the flamingos? Ostriches, you'd never seen a giraffe before. I brought one over from Africa, and I put on the most expensive troop of gladiators that money could buy. Remember that? Vote for me next time I stand for office. Okay? So this is, uh, this is a reason then... That, so you do not want... If you're putting all this money into a spectacle, you don't want the crowd to start going, well, they couldn't look at watches, but maybe look at the sundial. <laughs> or they're, or they're, they're, they're sort of you know, looking around thinking, this is kind of crap. You know? You don't want that because that will reflect badly on you. That will mean that your investment hasn't worked out. I, I saw a hand up at the back. This is a great question. The question is, are there any gods that are specifically associated with the gladiatorial games? And yes, uh, if you know anything about Roman paganism or ancient paganism, basically it's folded into every single aspect of life. So there's no aspect of Roman life that doesn't have a religious dimension to it. Um, insofar as the gods oversee uh, human welfare, human interactions, human relationships, the natural world, everything that people do, there will be a god involved. The Romans have literally thousands of deities in their pantheon. And there were certainly gods that were associated with the games. The god uh, Hades, Pluto to the Romans, was one, the god of the underworld. He's kind of a natural choice. Uh, There's also a... um, it's been noted by some scholars who've gone so far as to argue that the games are primarily religious events, by the way. I think they take that argument too far because that could be made of anything in, uh, in the Roman world. You, you could certainly make that argument for any number of things in the Roman world because religion is so it, it basically um, um, integrally bound up with everything that the Romans do. But another, uh, uh, people have noted that, for instance, when gladiators were injured uh, or they were dying are dead, a guy would come out with dressed up as a Etruscan god of the underworld called Charon with a, an enormous mallet and he would make sure that they weren't faking. Okay? The question is, where did the gladiatorial games come from? Well, um, maybe, maybe the Etruscans. The Romans said the Etruscans, but they said everything that they thought strange about their culture came from the Etruscans. <laughs> they were sort of... That, 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 that was the box into which you put all things that are old and odd that we do. Okay, why do we have seats like that, Etruscans? Why do, why do patricians wear silly boots, Etruscans? Okay, why do we associate purple with kingship, Etruscans? Where did the gladiatorial games come from? Etruscans. But the evidence would suggest, in fact, that the games come from the south of Italy. They're a, the closest analogue, pre-Roman analogue, to individual combat associated with funeral games is found in the area of Lucania, which is just around the Bay of Naples. Okay, actually, just south of the Bay of Naples. Campania is around the Bay of Naples. This is just the area right south. The site of Pistum uh, has a museum that has these very early 4th century B.C., scenes of funeral games for these warrior cultures called the Oscans. And uh, painted on the inside of the tombs are chariot races, wrestling, and individual combats. 
guys with Greek-style equipment and strange poking sticks. They're not swords or spears, but specific equipment designed for these combats. Sort of like large sticks, and they, they... Now, people are bleeding, so they do damage. But we don't see necessarily anyone being killed. We, do, we don't know if they were to, if they were to the death. And when, Roman game, and when the gladiatorial games first appeared in Rome in the year 264 BC, they were associated with uh, remembering the dead. In other words, with the funerary context. So I think... Not the, from the Olympic Games or from any of the Greek games? Not from the Greek... No, no, it doesn't come from that. The idea of armed men fighting each other, this seems to be an italic development. Yeah, it seems to be... Uh, uh, although when the Romans brought that over to the Greek side of the uh, empire, they loved it. They were all over it. They thought it was terrific. So all those who think the Greeks were sophisticated and sat around thinking philosophy and looking at white statues with straight noses, think again. <laughs> they like to go to the theatre and watch animals be butchered and people strapped to poles and be exposed to beasts and then the gladiators come out after lunch. Yep. Uh, if you were a gladiator fighting a, a, an emperor, uh, wouldn't you be careful not to hurt him? Oh, this is a very good point. If you're unfortunate enough to be the guy who's drawn to fight the emperor Commodus on the arena... You, your, your choices become somewhat limited. Um, you certainly can't win. Okay, that's out of the question. Um, you're, you can't feign a bad fight, because that will make the emperor look bad. So you have to be good enough to feign a bad fight and not make it look like it's a bad fight. You have to, sorry, you have to feign a good fight, uh, but make sure that you don't get killed. So, I don't know, in some way, uh, make it look like the emperor has, has outmaneuvered you. Because this actually leads me quite nicely to my third myth, which is that gladiatorial fights were always to the death. Okay, not true. There were four possible outcomes, death being one of them. This is a dangerous sport, okay? Um, if you're going to be wielding weapons and tridents and sharp swords at each other, well, some people are going to get hurt and some of them aren't going to get up afterwards, especially when the hammer guy shows up. So, um, that's one. Second uh, possible outcome is, you are, is that you're victorious, is that you win, and you, that's fair enough. Third outcome is that you're outmaneuvered, or you're injured, and you appeal. And you appeal by raising your finger. And that stops the fight. And there are referees, by the way, there are umpires, with vine sticks on the sand, and there's even one mosaic that shows one guy down, bleeding, hand up, and his opponent is kneeling over him, he's going like that, and there's a referee actually holding back his arm. As the guy is so fired up from the fight he wants to finish it off, but the guy's officially appealing, uh -uh, the rules kick in, he's holding back, and then who makes the decision, do you think? The emperor. The person who's paid all the cash for the games to be put on. The person who's called the editor. So everyone usually, when you see these scenes in Roman mosaics, and they're, they're, there's an appeal. They'll all tend to be looking in the one, in the one direction. And that'll be at the box, at the front, where the editor or the, the sponsor of the games was to be found. Now, when that happens, the, the editor gets up, he stands up, there's an appeal on, and, and there's a process to it. Because the crowd gets to voice their opinion. Okay? And they do it with what's called polyke wirasol, with the thumb turned. That's all I say. We don't know what that means. Okay? We think of it as thumbs up, the guy lives, thumbs down, the guy dies. That was decided apparently in the 1920s by a Hollywood movie producer. <laughs> who was asked, I don't want to hear any of that scholarly crap. Which one is it? Thumbs up, he lives, go with it. Okay? Now, but Pollock were so possibly could be that way could be that way. Some people think it means turn towards you, and you do that to indicate a killing, or that to indicate no, take your weapon away. Some people think it means that, go ahead and kill him, or no, no, he lives, and so on, or no, stab him, or whatever. There are all these arguments. This is the sort of thing scholars do when they're not sitting in their offices <laughs> reading magazines. So, what, uh, so, what, um, where, so where, oh, yeah, so then the appeal goes to... Now, the, the, the crowd would, of course, then give its opinion. Now, if, you're, if you've invested all this money to gain popular approval, what's a good thing to do? Go with the crowd. Yes, of course. 
You see? And the, you, you agree with their tremendous judgment. You go, absolutely. So you listen to what they say and you let it go. And they all cheer for you. And the guy's either killed or let go. Okay? And we hear that Caligula uh, was such a perverse character that he used to deliberately always go against the crowd's wishes. Just to irritate them. Uh, it, issuing the famous comment, if only you guys all had one neck. That was the comment that he made. He, he could strangle the entire Roman people in, in a single go. Anyway, so, now, if this happened and you survived the appeal, you were misus. You were sent out of the arena, that means. And you could lose lots and lots of fights and still be alive at, at the end of the day. We know this for sure because we have epitaphs of gladiators, gravestones, in which their track record is noted. He, he was 25 years of age. He came from Syria. Uh, he fought as a mermelo, see? Um, and he won, 20, you know, he, he, he won five of those fights. He was sent out X number of times. And then there's another possibility. Is that The fourth possibility is you've got death, victory, uh, loss without death, misos, to be sent out. And then there's a draw. That's called stantes misi, which means they were sent away both still standing. Okay. So that, that's a draw. So that means they fought probably, I, I can't imagine, these fights lasting longer than 20, 25 minutes before they start to get really tired, okay? And it starts to get kind of boring. You know, in the sort of round 10 or 12 of a heavyweight boxing match and all this hugging starts? <laughs> it's, it's, it starts to look like they're going to have a, maybe, maybe all go out and maybe, you know, have a milkshake and talk about it rather than punch each other out, which is what people want to see. Well, they, as, as people start to go, oh, I wish they stopped doing that. Well, I, you have to imagine that towards the end, it must, it, must start to, it must start to get dressed in your armor in the hot sun and so on. And there comes a time when the crowd says, enough, they've, they've fought to a standstill, send them out standing. And you could be sent out in the draw. Okay, a couple of questions. Yep. This is the German TV that is shown here at night had a feature uh, recently on the gladiatorial gladi- school. It's sort of like reenactors of Goldberg. And they had the head of the school, who's sort of like a godfather type, describing the training, and they showed the training. It really, I mean, they didn't discuss outcomes, but they, he claims that it was actually modeled on the actual program as they had discovered it. And it seemed pretty mild, I mean, just like a training camp. But do you know anything about the, the, the school, uh, uh, about their programs? Is it an actual uh, reconstruction? Is this the German scholar Martin Junkelmann, by, by any chance? Yeah, because he's yeah he's produced he's actually recreated all the equipment, and um, he has he's written a book called The Game of Death, uh, how the gladiators fought. It's it's in German though, so it's der Spiel mit dem Tod. So don't rush out and buy it. Uh, it's got lots of useful pictures. Yeah, exactly. And well, so well now the, now the gladiatorial training camp, which is called the ludus, which is the R- Roman word for any kind of a, uh, the Latin word for any kind of a training. It's, it means school, uh, so gladiatorial school, I guess, would be the ludus gladiatorius. And that um, those guys there will be trained at posts. And who do you get to train your gladiators? Better in gladiators, because after twenty-five, now we don't know if it's twenty-five wins or twenty-five fights. I think it's wins personally, because there are guys who are buried who have more than 25 fights and, were, and weren't free, you um, were released. And you were released by being given a wooden spoon. A spoon, excuse me. Wooden sword. Wooden spoon is a <laughs> phrase from the Six Nations Rugby Tournament in Ireland, which is just completed. So, that's uh, right. Uh, we didn't do very well. Um, the, a, a wooden sword was the mark of, uh, of being released. And then, of course, since you knew gladiatorial uh, games so well, and techniques, an ideal job would to become a doctor, a teacher at one of these training schools. And since you probably would have fought as a retiarius or a mermelo or a secutor or whatever, you'd be assigned to train the guys coming in in that particular category at a post. Okay? And we know even that they were graded within the gladiatorial training schools. There was first post, second post, third post. So they were like the best, very best, sort of, you know, A class, B class, C class, okay, which is something I'm used to from my Irish education, but isn't very popular here in the States, where you grade the classes according to uh, quality of student. Um, but we must imagine that life in the training school would be not quite football camp. I don't think, for instance, that people, when they come to the Penn State football camp, are frequently flogged <laughs> if they fail to make a pass correctly. 
are um, they're staked out uh, on the ground and exposed to the sun for a day because they've uh, infringed the rules in some minor way. Uh, I don't think they're forced to eat gruel in a large kitchen uh, served by slaves and that they're regularly beaten and so on. Um, and, um, also, you have to imagine that what these guys have been trained for uh, is to fight each other. And so this raises fascinating questions about what the relationships must have been like among the men in these places, uh, which is, I think, quite nicely brought out in movies like Spartacus, actually. It's that there's a kind of respect at the same time you realise the day might have to come when I'm going to have to face that guy and I have to go at it. So you're tr- yeah, you have you know, maybe hundreds of trained killers in these camps. They have to be heavily guarded. Uh, they're going to be with, with, with large high walls around them. These were remarkably, there were four of these places right in the heart of Rome, right beside the Colosseum. You can go and see it today if you're, if you're at the Colosseum. Right across the road, you can see the, the, what's called the Ludus Magnus, the great training school for the gladiators. There must have been some pretty serious security around that. Helen, and then I'll come to you, sir. Yes. How widespread were the games? They were found everywhere. Yep. Now, the rules, rules appear to have been the same. There is a variation in the, in the gladiatorial armatures. There's variation in the frequency of how the games were put on. There's variation in the venues uh, that they could be put on. And for instance, amphitheaters aren't found very often in the Greek East. They used theaters and stadia, which were already in place for their athletic and their theatrical performances didn't have that tradition in the West, and so the, the, you find more amphitheatres in Spain and Gaul and North Africa. The people of North Africa seem to have been particularly taken with gladiatorial games, especially hunts. They liked their animal hunts, which was the first thing in the morning. That's the first thing that you had in the morning, before lunch. Animal hunts. Exotic animals who were paraded around and then slaughtered, or would slaughter each other. Then came the executions, then the gladiators. So uh, the, the people of, of North Africa maybe because they had so much wildlife accessible to them, um, were very fond of their hunts. And they had, they had lots of mosaics and so on from that part of the world that we don't find so much of in other parts of the Roman world. But every, all the evidence is that they were just as popular. Anywhere they were introduced, people took to them, which is an interesting... Actually, it's, one, it's actually one of my myths later on. Yeah. That's a great question. What are your odds when you step on the sand and how many people are killed? And the answer to that is, we don't know. It's very, very hard to get at just this kind of statistical information about anything to do with the ancient world. Even something as basic as what was the population of the empire? What was the population of Rome? What was the population of somewhere that we can look at so closely, like Pompeii? Estimates there vary by a factor of five. Anything from 5,000 to 25,000. So you see, there's a lot of uncertainty. It's very, very hard to figure out. So how many gladiators... What were your odds of going in? Now, we have some bits and pieces of evidence. For instance, there's one guy whose epitaph um, states that he took part in the 110-day games. <laughs> four months. 110-day games that Trajan put on in the year 109 to celebrate his victories over the Dacians, who were the people of Romania. And... This guy says that in the course of that 110 days, he fought three times. Okay? He won one and was sent out twice. He wasn't very good, it seems. Uh, although he was rich enough to be able to make an epitaph, and he survived long enough to be able to make an epitaph. So, but is he typical? This is always the question. When you're dealing with the ancient world, you have scraps of information that have survived, often by sheer accident. There's no way to know why one inscription has survived and one inscription hasn't. They've just survived. And when you get a situation like that, how tip- the, the, the question of typicality is the overwhelming question. Is this thing being noted because it's unusual? Or is it just one of a typical range of activities? Or is he typical of that particular class of person or whatever? Uh, so we don't know how common that is. People have looked at all the epitaphs of gladiators. But this is a specific kind of gladiator, a gladiator who's done well enough to be able to afford to have a stonecutter carve an epitaph in the first place. How many thousands of kind of, you know, mediocre to rubbish gladiators are there? Sort of C to D to F gladiators, you know, not necessarily the best, uh, who didn't survive, you know, uh, and, and who were killed in large numbers. How many unfortunates went out in their first fight? And that was it for them. You know, it, it's, 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 it's really interesting, but we just can't get at the information, unfortunately. I see hands up all over the place. This gentleman here, great, another great point. 
I didn't mention. One of the reasons people went is because they could bet. And um, really good evidence for this is that before a gladiatorial game was staged, or a, a spectacle, it would be announced in advance, weeks or months in advance. Paintings, this is basically, basically the equivalent of posters, would be put up on the walls of cities. We know this from Pompeii because we actually have the paintings and the advertisements. And they would announce, who's, of course, who's, who's going to be you know, footing the bill? Who's the guy with the cash? That's the first thing noted. Secondly, when it's going to be, and what's going to be on offer? 25 pairs of gladiators, there'll be a hunt, and the awnings will be used so that you'll have shade. Okay? Um, uh, are, and there might be sparsiones, which are uh, gifts that are thrown into the crowd. Tickets that would be thrown into the crowd, and you could then go and redeem your ticket for a slave. Uh, we hear that Nero, for instance, gave them out, and there were such things as he gave away islands, villas, our loaves of bread. So you wouldn't, wouldn't know where the really good one was. It's kind of like Roman lottery. But you had to show up to get your, 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 your little ticket. So those kinds of things could be added in as further attractions. Now, we have, that, we have one advertisement from Pompeii that lists each fight by the type of gladiator fighting the other type of gladiator. So you know the armature. Then the name of each gladiator and his record to date. This guy's fought 25 times and won 20 times. This guy, it's his first fight. Why would you want that information? And you must be good if he survives. It's a form book. It's a form book to tell you how to, how to bet. Yeah? It's telling you, well, the first guy versus 20 victories, pff, odds will be, you know, and I'm sure that the bookies would appropriately have the odds, you know. And then, even more interestingly, in this particular uh, um, advertisement from Pompeii, somebody afterwards has come up and painted the results in each case. One, or less, a little circle with a line through it. That, that's the Theta Nigra. means dead. Or M, for misus, for sent out. Okay? So he, he sort of updated it. So people keep going, okay, okay. Oh, my guy's dead. Okay, I'll pick a new one. And that's how it would, that's how it would go. So... Yeah, wages certainly. Was there another? Uh, yes. Uh, quick question. Uh, just so I understand correctly, that it was it lowered your dignitas to be involved directly in the event, but it raised your dignitas to sponsor the event. Correct. Is that correct? Correct. Well, how did they uh, resolve that? It, would, it seems like a contradiction, but. Well, you're not. Well, the difference is that you're paying the money for other people to make spectacles of themselves. You aren't being paid to make a spectacle of yourself. That's the difference. You're, now, where do you get your money from? Where's the only honorable place to get your money in the Roman world? The only honorable place. Land ownership. They're, an arist- they're a landed gentry. Now, filthy lucre could be earned through trade and so forth, but senators didn't talk publicly about those investments. Okay? You, 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 and you could also earn money by uh, renting out, out apartments. People didn't talk publicly about that either. And that was for the equestrians and other Greek types. But we senators, we own land. We're landed gentry, you see. But, so you have your money and you're deploying it for the benefit of the community, your private wealth. This is actually part of a wider phenomenon in the Roman world. It's called, by modern scholars, euergotism, which means basically benefaction. It's a fancy French, Greek-French word. You never find it in the ancient sources. For basically uh, spending your private money for public benefit. This is how all the buildings you see when you go away at the Roman world were built. They didn't have an income tax system, as we know it. So people, and they didn't have a stock market, lucky for them, I think, (laughs) given the way things are going. Uh, And what they would do is, um, people who were rich, there was a sort of social expectation that they would deploy their money for everyone's benefit. They would build the buildings, they would maintain the buildings, they would fund games, they would fund other spectacles, chariot games, theater spectacles. They would sometimes, they would give public banquets and everyone was invited with all the food gradated according to class, upper class people. What's that? And get into debt. And, and get into debt. Some of them would do that. Uh, and they would um, basically, um, you know, fund all the public functions of their communities out of, out of this sense of generosity. In return, they received all this deference and social respect that they so desperately craved. And, and for which they competed among each other. So the games fit into that wider pattern. Okay, yeah. I think that's a 
This is a terrific question. Why, in Zeus's or Jupiter's name, would you want to become a gladiator? Why, in Jupiter's name, would you jump out of a helicopter on skis onto a mountaintop? <laughs> Why, in the name of Aphrodite, would you bungee jump from 400 feet into a canyon in New Zealand? Okay. There are, there are some people who like to live on the edge. There are some people for whom the everyday mundane world of being a Roman senator is just too damn dull. And to liven things up, uh, you might as well get equipped as a retiarius and get out there. Okay? So that's what I think. I think there's no other reason. People who craved adulation, perhaps, uh, I can't imagine them needing money because, well, I, sometimes, of course, see, the, the, the Roman upper classes asked themselves this question as well. And their answers were, well, because they're morally corrupt, which was pretty much the Roman answer for everything that, that they didn't like. These are morally corrupt people. Are they ruined? They're perdity. They're people who were bankrupt, and so they have to earn money, and so they become gladiators. But we, but we know that that can't be the case in every instance, because they're, they're, you know, you know, it, it doesn't strike me as being entirely convincing that every gladiator is a moral bankrupt. <laughs> So I, I think probably just thrill-seeking go, uh, goes a long way. Question again in the corner. Well, I missed part, a little bit of this, so I'm not sure if you mentioned the precedence for these myths. The, the roots of them in the Bible, and the Oh, the, you, mean, you mean the myths of gladiators, how people have these ideas? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, sure. And there were, I mean, the gladiator is an inherently interesting figure uh, and makes, did make in the Roman world and makes for us a very good spectacle. Uh, and there's no reason why, um, for instance, the paintings of the likes of uh, Jean-Léon Jérôme or something, his famous painting, Pollock Worso with the gladiator standing over his fallen enemy, looking up at the emperor with the Vestal Virgins baying in the front row with their thumbs down. Um, you know, a very striking image. I love that poster, uh, uh, that painting. I use it all the time in my classes. It's a great starting point for a discussion about gladiators. Um, but yes, I mean, people who are, you know, or, or, or what's this chap, uh, Talmeda, Alva, Alma Talmeda, who painted these ancient scenes in the Victorian era. Yeah, I mean, they helped generate what are today the popular myths about gladiators. But uh, researching gladiators has really, really taken off in the last, say, 18 years or so, and we really, we really know a lot more about them now than we did back then. Sir? A couple years ago, HBO did a series called Rome that researched. I wonder if you saw oh, it yeah. thought about it. Yeah, I own both seasons, so, th so that's a good sign. But then again, I own, also own Troy. <laughs> um, so I do ten and Alexander. Uh, so I do tend to buy whatever comes out that's ancient within reason. I did stop short at 300. I couldn't go there. <laughs> couldn't do that. But um, I thought Rome was um, terrific. I thought it got, uh, really got to the heart of a lot of... I mean, there were, of course, lots of historical errors. And, um, they had lots of anachronisms, and I hated the military equipment, and I thought they got some of the characters terribly wrong. The later Augustus was like some kind of a psychopathic Hitler or something. It didn't strike me as nearly, nearly as correct, as sort of affable and charismatic as he would have been in real life, I think. But they got so much of it right. I was really impressed with many of the attitudes that they had that seemed to be so right. I thought um, sort of the ambience of the city, the crowded, cramped, you could almost smell it, the dirty streets, and meat hanging out of, you know, small, small sort of um, cellar-like... Uh, Shops like you see in maybe a bazaar in the Middle East today, that's what I think the streets of Rome would have been like. They got that really well. Some of the public areas as well weren't these sort of marvelous, marbled, beautiful, colored buildings, which came later, but in the time of Caesar were danker, grimmer-looking structures, and they got that very well. So I, I, really, I, really, I thought it was really terrific, and I, I, I watched both seasons twice, so I, I really... I really enjoyed it. I thought it was very good, and I give them high marks for it. It, 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 was, it was really very well done. Yes, sir? Is it a myth someone here? that it was the rise of Christianity that, uh, gave, that basically led to the decline and end of the game? 
That's a, another great question. Was it the rise of Christianity that led to the end of the games? Is, is that a myth? And the answer is yes. The reason that gladiators went away was because it became so incredibly expensive to put the games on. And the infrastructure for assembling, for instance, the necessary uh, uh, menagerie of animals that you want to display uh, began to break down. The whole urban infrastructure of Rome began to collapse in the uh, fourth, late 4th and then, of course, into the 5th century. So um, we had our first Christian emperor, I guess, with Constantine, although that's all quite debatable, but nevertheless he at least gets into the Christian scene. And we have gladiatorial fights going all the way into the 5th century. And the hunts continue right through afterwards. They have no trouble watching animals being butchered. And it's, it's not as if Christian emperors stopped hideous execution techniques and so forth. Okay, I mean, they wouldn't allow people to be crucified because that would be blasphemous now. Uh, but you could still, you know, string people up and do all kinds of absolutely atrocious things to them, as long as they were people of the right class, of course. Uh, hierarchy pr pervades the Roman mentality uh, at every level. So it looks like the games... Uh, Christians did have objections to the games, of course, because they had been sometimes part of the program, <laughs> to, 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 to put it mildly. Um, and so they had objections, and also because the religious associations, they regarded the games as sort of temples of idolatry and so forth. Um, and so they had all kinds of objections, but they don't seem to have been terribly... Um, they don't seem to have filtered down to the everyday person. The game's popularity continued into the 5th century. I believe the last, the last attested gladiatorial spectacle is in, in the 420s, I think, which is really quite late in Gaul somewhere. Yeah. Five minutes or so. Or Five minutes. More. But um, if you wanted to cover, I don't know if you want to cover the remaining myths. Oh, well, I have only, let me see, uh, let me see where I'm, I just want to take out my very detailed notes here. Have a look if I can find my place. Um, yeah, let's deal with the myth that the uh, spectators at the Roman games were a bunch of uh, baying common savages. Okay, they weren't. Uh, the vast majority of the cavea, that's to say the seating area of an uh, uh, amphitheatre, our theatre, or anywhere where these games were put on, were by law, by what we would call today federal law, so by imperial law, all across the empire, reserved for people of quality. <laughs> okay? And uh, scholars have done some excellent work on um, the symbolism of this. So what you have is the caveat itself. If you ever go to um, a Roman theatre or amphitheatre in which the seating is reasonably well preserved, you'll see that it's divided into... It looks very familiar, of course, because modern sporting arenas have modelled themselves on these earlier Roman models. Uh, it's divided into sections that are both horizontal or sort of circles that go out from the actual area, the actual performance area, and then there are, there are these perpendicular cuts. So that there, there are wedges of seats. And... Um, Every single spot, except for one tiny bit towards the back, was reserved for some class or other. In the Colosseum, for instance. Senators at the front, special box for the emperor, special box for the Vestal Virgins. The only women allowed to sit at the front. The rest of the women had to sit at the very back, because they didn't want to have women exposed to all those well-oiled, finely honed gladiatorial bodies that are with, with the violence, the general distrust that the Romans had of the female libido and so on. You know, best that we keep the women as far away as possible from the action. And then immediately behind the senators then, sitting at the front, uh, which, which is literally right on the podium, so they're able to look down like right over this maybe 15-foot wall and see what's going on. Um, you have the equestrians. And then behind them you have freeborn people. They're called freeborn people with clean clothes. That's how they're designated. So they're freeborn people who can afford enough to wash their clothes regularly. Then there's the unregulated part, which is freeborn people with dark clothes. So that's the real sort of rough element, the riffraff, if you like. And they're in a little band towards the back. And then at the very back are slaves and women. So, and this is mandated by law. Okay? And they have guys patrolling the seats. So we know people would put on fancy clothes and try and sneak up to the equestrian rows and sit there. I hope no, hope no, no, they're being pulled out. Some guy says, you, we know you, get, get back to your proper place. So this means that what you're looking at when you go to the room, and everyone's dressed in their Sunday best, okay? So when you go into the arena, um, you look around, and there is Roman society. There is the Roman social order manifest, ranked, 
according to the most important at the front to the least important at the back. Everyone dressed in their best gear. The baying mob are that little bit, the very sort of second, second from the very back. Okay, so that's one myth then that the uh, that the games are put on to keep the lower classes. Well, the bread and circus is myth. To keep the lower classes dull, to keep them entertained and not thinking about politics, because very few of the lower classes could actually go, unless they were connected to people of importance who could give them their their tickets for the fancy seats. So, um, and even then, they risked being thrown out if they didn't uh, ha- have the right documentation, the, the right ticket. So, um, that is, I think, a very important myth that people seem to think of the games as being this sort of, uh, you know, mass of of, of uh, savages. And I would just say one more thing, just, just my final myth, just while I'm here and on this topic. And this is a myth that really scholarship has generated. I don't think it's one that, the, this is one where I, I think actually that the general populace is, uh, the general view of Roman games is probably more correct than that in scholarship. Scholars have located and argued for the Roman games as a uniquely Roman thing. It's a uniquely Roman phenomenon, these, uh, these gladiatorial combats. It's, and they've come up with all kinds of fancy theories about the location of the games in Roman culture and their function, their meaning to the Romans and so forth that made them attractive to go and watch. And I think a lot of that is, well, I wouldn't say nonsense, but a lot of it is questionable. Look at the shape of world history. All you have to do is announce, listen, we're going to execute some guy tomorrow on Allen Street and you'd have 25,000 people showing up to watch. Okay? All, there, are, there, are, there are accounts from the Middle Ages and, from, and from even from the so-called Enlightenment, from 18th century Europe, 100,000 people going to the Place de Grève in Paris to watch some unfortunate guy broken on the wheel, a process that takes about four hours. You know, and people would show up with opera glasses and they would rent apartments nearby. And with opera glasses, make sure they don't want to miss that bone being broken. This is only 200 years ago. In 1936, in Owensburg, Kentucky, the last legal public hanging, only 200 years ago. In 1936, in Owensburg, Kentucky, the last legal public hanging in the United States took place. And it was of an African-American teenager for the murder of a septuagenarian white woman eight weeks earlier. And he was hanged, I believe, on August 26th, 1936. 25,000 people came from five states to watch. Some of them built cots around the gallows the night before so as to get the best possible seats. Hot dogs were sold as the hanging proceeded. So that's, only th- that's 1936, folks. Now, are you telling me that the people who were there are that much different from the Romans in their arenas? Are, are, are they really that much different? I don't think so. I think that's a wonderful note to <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much.